This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, you won't believe how many works of art are stolen every day across the world. Christopher A. Marinello, CEO and founder of Art Recovery International, tells us how his company tracks down stolen art and the thieves who take it. He also tells us how the criminal underworld moves stolen pieces around and how Canada, Canada is a bit of a hotbed for this stuff. Anna Shalis, foreign policy expert, is live with us from Odessa, Ukraine. She gives us an update on the Ukrainian counteroffensive against Russia, plus how civilians are contributing to Ukraine's major military operation too. And Game Showy, the back-to-school version of our radio trivia show is on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. It's trivia time, folks. I'm Shane Hewitt. I am in Airdrie, just outside of Calgary. Ryan O'Donnell is in Calgary downtown. Brendan Kelly is in Vancouver downtown. And it is time for the greatest game show in all of Canada. That's right. It's time for game showing. It's a game show amongst all other game shows. The best of all the game shows. Here's your host, Ryan O'Donnell. Well, thanks, Bob. Damn right, it's the best. Cheers, explosions, good times were had by all. Yes, this is Game Showy, the most simple and excellent trivia this side of the Mississippi. Uh, the rules are as are very simple and are as follows. Very interesting. <laughs> I don't know, I'm ad-libbing. Uh, you guys are our contestants, Shane Hewitt and Brendan Kelly, are going to pick a category and a difficulty of question. Today we're playing for textbooks as we are going back Ooh. to school for this trivia. So one textbook being easy and three textbooks being hard. You're going to have some homework to do. Now, if Uh-oh. you get your answer correct, you will hear this sound. Oh, I thought I pulled the Recess. fire alarm. No, it's recess. I oh, did that's actually, the recess bell. I, I had to go through, like, you have no idea how many bells I had to go through to find one that didn't sound like a fire alarm. So, wow. uh, anyway, that's the best I could do. And if you get it wrong, unfortunately, you will hear this. Uh-huh. Now, your opponent has five seconds to steal the answer. So, if you get it wrong, there's a chance to get it right if you, if you know the answer. And we also have the text line special. This question is just for the texters. So, Shane, Brendan, you cannot answer this. Okay. 877-399-9898. Get your phones ready. I'm going to ask you now. And this question will randomly pop up again later in the show. If the texters, who will answer now, get it correctly, the contestant who randomly stumbles on that question will get three points. Dun, dun, dun. So... If you're ready, 877-399-9898. Get your phones ready if you can text. Here is your question, my friends. If you were skipping school, you were probably watching some TV. So what was most likely to be on TV while you were at home while all the other losers were at school? Was it The Price is Right, Judge Judy, Maury, Springer, or all of the above. 
That is the question. I will give you the options one more time. What was most likely to be on TV while you were home skipping school? The Price is Right, Judge Judy, Maury, Springer, or all of the above? Text in your answers now, and it could be a game-changing question later on in the show. Would you like right, to get into the categories? Yeah, I want to get the to categories. Find out what you're playing for. The, the categories. Intro. Oh, yep. you hit this. Yeah, hit the intro again. Yeah. It's time to hear your categories. Ryan? Thanks, Bob. Back to school fashion is your first category. Back to school elementary edition is your second. And the third is back to school post secondary. Those what is drinking? Three... Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, correct. Yeah, <laughs> your three. Sorry, those are the, your three categories. And again, we're playing for textbooks. One textbook being easy, three being hard. So, who's going first? Hmm. Who am I? Who, who's going first? Shane won last week, yeah. and he also had the help of Fred on the text line. So, I think Brennan Kelly yeah, gets Fred to go awesome. first. Okay. Okay. Um, so textbooks. I don't know if you read a geography textbook, but the Mississippi River is not like. What side are we on? Are we on the west side or the, the north? We're on the north side yeah. of the Mississippi River. <laughs> this, this is a serious question. <laughs> this, is, this is what game show is going to be. Anyway. Uh, all right. Okay. Um, let's do back to school college, and I'll just start off easy with one textbook. Oh, okay. So if you're uh, – well, it's a party question. If you're bringing a spiked Arnold Palmer to the party, what's in it? What's it made of? Is it A? Orange juice, lemonade, and vodka. Is it B, hard iced tea with hard lemonade, or vanilla Coke and rum? Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe it is the hard iced tea thingy. With hard lemonade. Yeah. That is correct. Yes. Bingo. I would have thought orange juice, boy. You see, I thought refreshing. That's I've never had no, one. Lemonade, refreshing. Yeah, yeah lemonade true. and uh, iced tea sounds delicious. I think that we should be doing a taste test. Just saying, mm-hmm. it brings some authenticity to the contest. Yeah, sorry, I can't. Uh, here's one through the Zoom call. Here's another. Have another. All right. Okay. Well, I guess I'm up. Then I'm going to go for two textbooks. Back to school fashion, Ryan. Back to school fashion. Okay. In the early 2000s, a type of gene merged with yet another type of gene to create an absolute monstrosity. What type of gene was huge in schools in the 2000s? Was it A, jeggings? B, MC Hammer jeans? C, super skinny jeans? Or D, distressed bell bottoms? Okay. Um, can you just read them all? Just one, two, three, four again, please. Yep, you got it. Jeggings, MC yep. Hammer jeans, super yep. skinny jeans, distressed yep. bell bottoms. Uh, jeggings were too late. That's probably 2008, 2009. Super skinny jeans. I feel like that's mega emo, like maybe 2007. MC Hammer's 290s. Distressed, though, and bell bottoms. I don't really remember bell bottoms coming back in the 2000s. But distressed would be. I'm going with distressed because I'm going with distressed oh, bell bottoms because okay. that's process the of elimination. because of the dis, yeah distressed. I yeah. really don't know. I'm just okay. Well, to, you're yeah. 
surprise, surprise, on trend, in fact, was distressed bell bottoms. Yes. Oh, bell bottoms came back thanks to people like Lindsay Lohan, Ashley Tisdale, early 2000s Disney Channel stars all had the bell bottoms on. So there you go. For two textbooks, okay. Shane is in the lead by one. Uh, yes. Brendan, if you want to be a grade A student, you're going to yeah. have to jump ahead here. Yeah, I'm going to try to go way ahead. So back to school elementary for three. For three. Okay. Oh, this is a a tough one. Bear with me here, okay? Which term refers to the fear of going to school? Is it? Okay. Didaskalanophobia. Didaskalanophobia. Ergophobia. Or latrophobia. Could you say that first one again? Just because it was fun. (laughs) Uh, did <laughs> did Askalanophobia? Did Askalanophobia? That's it. That's the last time I want to know. That. I, I want to know who Elaine is and why you're yeah. asking about her phobia. I'll go with Didaskalanophobia. I think he's playing the Ryan O'Donnell prediction game. <laughs> Do you guys have any idea how difficult it is to find random, complicated? F- you know, phobias. That is correct. Yes. For three textbooks, it affects two to 5% of school children. And it is a genuine fear of going to school. Like not just like, Oh, I don't want to go to school today. No, an actual fear of going to school. A real thing. Hmm. Didaskalanophobia. I'm going to find the real pronunciation for that by the end of the night. That's my homework. All right. All right. Brendan is in the lead with four textbooks. Shane, you have two. Where are we going next? I will go with uh, I don't remember much from both of my college experiences at Red Deer College or State, so I'm going to just go mid-level, two textbooks, back to school, college. This is a long time ago, though. Okay. All right. You got it. You know? <laughs> college is in black and white. All right. For two, <laughs> for two textbooks, Canada has three degree-granting universities with what in their name? Is it King's? Queens or Dukes? Kings, Queens, Queen or Dukes? Yeah. Or well, I don't know of any Dukes, so I'm going to go with uh, on Dukes. Oh, well, there's that Duke, right? Yeah. Uh, Queens is University in Kingston. And so, I mean, I did do radio in Brockville and we parted really hard at AJ's Hangar. So I feel like I'm connected to Queens, but that was the only one. Like, I've never heard, like, hey, do you go to Queens? You party at AJ's Hangar, you know, but I've never heard anybody say that for anywhere else. And I feel like uh, uh, King's the only one left. So there we go. I'm going with King. Yeah, that's okay. This is trivia. You find the answer one way or another, and that is yes, correct. There is King's University at Western University, London, Ontario. There's the University of King's College in Halifax and King's University in Edmonton. There is also two Concordia universities, Montreal, and uh, there's also another one in Edmonton that's also called uh, Concordia. I knew none of that in any way. I can tell you this. The AJ's hangar, Dan Aykroyd watching the Tragically Hip. Wow. Wow. You wow. saw Dan Aykroyd watching the Tragically Hip. In- yeah, Tragically Hip were playing, and Dan Aykroyd was sitting right there watching the Tragically Hip. It was so cool. That's like the most Canadian thing that could ever happen. Oh, it, it absolutely was. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, that was the place that all of the Canadians came. AJ's Hangar was, I swear, at the time anyway, it was the place where all the Canadian bands went to, right? Yeah. That's that's what they all popped in for. Um, 5440 mm-hmm. and Blue Rodeo and all of them. That's wicked. Uh, Headstones. Uh, Leonard Cohen walked in with the maple syrup for you, right? Just, Absolutely, yeah. and free bacon. Wow. Okay. Yum. Bacon. Okay, well, where are we now? We've got a we've got a tie here. Four textbooks each. So uh Brendan, where are we going next? Uh let's go back to school fashion for three. Oh. For three. Holy. Okay. All right, let me just pull out something here. Let me just uh Okay. Right now I am staring at a ad in a nineteen seventies magazine. It's advertising. Mm-hmm. This is once again a bell bottoms pants question uh, for men. Bell bottoms for men. How much did a pair of brand spanking new bell bottoms cost in 1976 in this back to school ad? Was it five ninety nine, eleven ninety nine, twenty ninety nine, or three ninety nine? Brand new pair, eh? Brand new. What year was it? 1976. 76. I'll go with the second most expensive, 11.99. 11.99. What's your final answer? Yeah. That's correct. Yes, it is 11.99. Technically, they were on sale for 5.99, but it's a sale price. So the the actual retail price, 11. Wait a minute. Which at first I thought was kind of crazy cheap, but then I remembered there are so many fast fashion places that are 11.99 on sale for 5.99. High quality jeans. Okay. High quality. I just don't want any discrepancy. I don't need Trucker Dan harassing us saying we're fixing it again here. So I just want to make sure I got the correct <laughs> answer. Did get the correct eleven ninety nine. I mean, it, I did not put it was the sale advertised price in the as list. a sale price. I mean, I feel like there's a little gray area. Ah, here we there go. There was a gray, it's but he starting... got it right. No, he got right. it right. Eleven ninety nine. There were, and I did not put the sale price on that list. The sale price was six ninety nine. All right. What's go. the okay. um? What's the score? The score is now, Brendan is up. Brendan has, it is now, you have four, and Brendan has seven. Oh, goodness. Well, I have to go with three then to try to tie it up, and I think the yeah. only three one left would be the back-to-school college place for okay, three textbooks. Yeah. This is a good one. It's really funny. Shane's getting all the party questions. Um, and just remember that the text line special is still out there, hiding somewhere okay. in the show. One of the greatest college pranks of all time, happened at the Faculty of Engineering at the University of Manitoba, also in 1976. This prank is so legendary, it's actually a tradition, which is I do not encourage, but here it is. In 1976, engineering students pranked the dean in a ridiculous way. My question to you, Shane, is what did they do? Was it A, build an iron door in front of the dean's door to stop him from being able to open his office? Did they assemble a small car in the dean's office? Did they create an elaborate trap system that launched paint all over the inside? Or did they release a coop of chickens in the office? Wow. Well, if they're engineers, I'm going to say it's not chickens because it's not the farming department. And if it's not paint, it's not the creative department. So that leaves what? That left the car and the iron door. And the creating a door. 
Yeah, so the Iron Door probably seems to be the most obvious because they get this the steel ring, the engineers, right? Then they graduate. But then again, assembling a car seems like a very engineering thing to do. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I don't know. I, um, iron door. But that seems way too simple. Like engineers would be like, let's build an iron door. And someone would be like, that's iron door is not very pocket protector, right? So I'll go with the car. I'm going to say, I'm going to go as far as to say they actually assembled a car. Uh, Well, they actually, yes, they did indeed assemble a small car inside his office. And in 1980, engineering students did it again, except they built a larger car on top of the roof of the dean's office. You could have fooled me if they still, they they built a pierogi or something. Yeah. Yeah, I could. I could have. Yeah. Well, we've got a, we got a tie game now. Seven to seven. Wow. Cool. We got to come down to the last questions then. Yeah, yeah. We got basically one question left for each of you. Okay, oh, uh, back to school, elementary for two. For two. Okay, uh, Brendan, uh, where is my question? Okay. Uh, okay. Here's your question. This is the audio question, by the way. Uh, what company runs this famous back to school ad featuring a very, very famous Christmas song? Here's a snippet of the ad for you. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's that time of year again. They're going back. It's back to school time. I get triggered when I hear that song. I remember. Mm -hmm. Uh, Brendan, what company created Uh, that ad? Is it Staples? Button. That was easy. Yes. That it was staples. <laughs> that was easy button. <laughs> I like that. All right, so that was for okay. two, right? And there's no that was for two. Questions. So Shane, you can tie it, or if you get lucky, you stumble on the text line special question, and that is worth three points if the texter's got it right. All right, well, I got to do two points, and I have avoided the elementary category completely. So in good integrity, I'm going to go back to school elementary for two textbooks, please, Ryan. <gasps> Uh, dun, dun, dun. This is indeed, yes, the text line special. Very nice. Wow. Okay, so a reminder. This was a question that was posed to the listeners and the listeners alone. They had to answer this for you. So, Shane, even if you know the answer, you cannot tell it to me. Only the listeners can. So, okay. a reminder. The question was, if you were skipping school, what was most likely to be on TV while the suckers were in class? Was it... The Price is Right, Judge Judy, Maury, Springer, or all of the above. Now, I have pulled all of the answers. And I have to say, for every single text line special we've done, it has been an overwhelming yes. However, one correct or one wrong answer will determine this. Because currently, at my tally, it's tied on the answer. And that is the fact that it is all above or The Price is Right. Hmm tied okay i need one more text i need one more text 877-399-9898 tell me once again the question is what was most likely to be on tv while you were skipping school price is right judge judy maury springer or all of the above if you know the answer you need to text it in now because if you're right shane will win (laughs) 
I'm just going to text here one second. You're just going to text? Yeah, gonna text. <laughs> Brendan's texting in him. Wait a second. I'm going to text it to 877 It's only one. It only needs one one answer. One answer will do it. One. I'm waiting patiently. Well, there comes one. There comes oh, one. Oh, we got one. one came in. We got one. All right. We got one. Shane? Hmm. With two extra texts. We just got two extra texts. Oh, actually. Oh. Um, oh. Okay. All right. Well, the correct answer was all of the above. And unfortunately, by three extra votes, the price is right was chosen as the winner. All of the above was the correct answer. So, yes. That means that Brendan Kelly does indeed win the back-to-school edition of Game Show. He is the teacher's pet. Uh, I always was. All right. Hit it. And that's Game Showy. Congratulations to Brendan Kelly for being the teacher's pet. Next week on Game Showy, another topic that we'll probably figure out just before we do Game Showy. Remember to have your pets spayed or neutered. Brian? That's my name. Don't wear it out, Bob. <laughs> This is the Shift Podcast. Someone stole Sir Winston Churchill, which does sort of beg the question about art theft in general. We, I know art theft. We know art theft from movies. You know, these over-glorified ninja moves through laser beams and people stealing art. Now, I do know that the world of art is very private, but what happens when art goes missing? This is where our new friend steps in, Christopher A. Marinello, CEO and founder of Art Recovery International, uh, joins us here on The Shift. Uh, hey, Chris, how are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. Art recovery, huh? So are, are you chasing bad guys or am I too Hollywood with that? Well, it's a bit Hollywood. I mean, most of the time we're chasing stolen, looted, uh, and missing works of art, and occasionally we run into a bad guy, and uh, the bad guys either cooperate or we leave the uh, leave them to the law enforcement. It's the the guys with the badges and the guns that get the bad guys. We get the artwork. So there's so many questions I have, Chris. I almost don't even know where to start. Like this is first of all, your job is fascinating to me. Um, the world of art is incredibly private, though, as far as I understand it. Lots of private sales, lots of art gets put away in secret places and not necessarily hung up on walls. Does that make your job very difficult? Yes, it's definitely a uh, occupation where you're dealing with high net worth individuals who don't like to uh, see their names in the press. They don't like their art collections to be known. Uh, whether it's tax avoidance or theft avoidance or just uh, an excess of uh, um, wanting to be uh, anonymous. But that is the art world. Lots of they also have, uh, I would imagine, if they are high net worth, a pretty good army of lawyers, Chris, to get in your way. 
nobody wants to see a lawyer. And as uh, as a lawyer myself, trust me on that one. Uh, lawyers can be extremely expensive. Litigation is time consuming and very public. So uh, we spend a lot of our time trying to resolve these title disputes outside of the courtroom. This would be a good time for me to be uh, prudent and ask if you're billing me by the minute, <laughs> just to be sure. Here. <laughs> no, no, this one's on the house today. Uh, thanks, buddy. Um, so art goes missing. Does it does it go missing all the time, or is it one of those things where we have sneaky buyers with fakes and selling the wrong things? What do you see in the world of Art Recovery International that 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 is the most common? I guess I don't know if I want to call it the discovery of missing art or uh, the purposeful missing of art that shouldn't go missing. Every morning before I've had my sixth double espresso, uh, I get reports between five and eight a day of, of something new that's gone missing or no has been reported stolen. Every morning, every morning. So, like five, five uh, to eight pieces of art a day. Every single day, but that could include rare automobiles, uh, fine watches, jewelry, uh, painting, sculptures. Uh, you know, anywhere in the world. And this summer has been an explicitly lively summer of watch theft. Um, in, in, in summer locales really? like Barcelona and Cannes and, and the Riviera, um, Naples, Milan, people are having six-figure watches ripped off their wrists and uh, the perpetrators disappear into a crowd with a moped or a motorcycle and, and the watches then are appearing very quickly on Instagram where they're being offered for sale. Wow. And can you chase those people down, you know, from social media? I guess I would have my, I guess where my brain goes is that that sort of social media ego thing starts to kick in. Cause if you're going to steal a watch like that, you have to know what you're looking for. It's not like you can go, you know, uh, rip a Folex off of somebody's arm and post that on Instagram. That's right, and the unique serial numbers to these types of watches uh, are uh, enable us to match them with 100% certainty. The problem is, is when we find something being offered in Hong Kong that was stolen in Canada, uh, we rec- we need assistance from local law enforcement, and unfortunately, we don't always get that, especially in places like Hong Kong, China, and uh, East Asian uh, countries. Hmm. How do they move it? I mean, you talked about uh, cars. We did a thing on on the shift here about an old, old, old Rolls Royce that was filled with drugs that went from Canada to Australia. So that's just a car moving in a container. But that one was expected to be moved. Uh, I mean, how do you move this kind of stuff? Uh, rare cars. I, I'm guessing that maybe you pack a watch in your bathroom bag, but you wear a $100,000 watch on your wrist. People are going to notice. How does this stuff move? Well, you'd be surprised how quickly these stolen objects move around the world. I got a report in Beverly Hills that a a bunch of watches were stolen. Within three days, they were being offered for sale by a dealer in Belgium. Three days. So, you know, there, there are networks that fence these objects very quickly. So when you go to that guy in Belgium... And you knock on the door, knock, knock, knock. Hi there, my name is Mr. Marinello. By the way, that watch you have right there, that was stolen out of L.A. three days ago. Gimme. 
Like, do they cough it up? How does that work? Yeah, very infrequently. They usually fight to the death to keep it. Oh, I didn't know it was stolen. Or, or prove that it's the same one that was stolen. Or they thumb our, their nose at us and say, well, we're in Russia, so come and get it. You know, it's... Right. You really, we do, for us to do what we do, we need to rely on some semblance of law enforcement. And unfortunately, around the world, law enforcement is just overburdened, underfunded, and unwilling to assist people in getting back their valuable. They look at it as a rich person's crime. They're, they're, they're not really interested in helping uh, you know, I think it's mostly because of, of men and women power that are, they just don't have the ability to do this, which is why we're here to help. But we do require them to assist to, on some level. And uh, not every police force is willing to do that. It's unfortunate. Okay, now, now, this could be, this could be again, my Hollywood brain, but it, like Mission Impossible, hire Tom Cruise. There must be private you know, enterprise out there that does stolen recovery, stealing it back from the thief of these high expensive, high value things. I mean, if it's something worth $10 million, I would imagine that the owner would have no problem paying a million dollars to get it back and pay someone else to steal it. Is that, I realize it's a little bit out of your purview, but you, you must hear, you know, grumblings of those kinds of things. Well, we've worked very closely with a number of ex-law enforcement officers that set up shop as a private detective. But uh, I would have to say that it's very rare that they're successful in assisting us in what we do. We mostly spot stolen and looted objects when they're put up for sale. And, uh, you know, as an attorney, I'm able to use the law uh, to my advantage and hold up the sale of those objects and then try to seize them uh, with the, using the legal process. Uh, but the, the idea that, um, you know, a private investigator is going to go into uh, Serbia and hunt down a $3 million watch, it's just not going to happen. It, it, it's just, that's certainly Hollywood uh, would have us believe that that's available yeah. to us, but it really isn't. They also climb up the side of the building to do it, in case you were wondering. Well, I have um, to be honest with you, I did have a theft <laughs> that I worked on in London where the thieves did climb up the side of the building oh, to wow. enter into an auction house and, wow. and, and stole a bunch of rare books. And those books ended up uh, in Italy, uh, where I was able to, wait, for sale with legitimate dealers, where I was able to convince them to give up the books. And I worked with the Carabinieri in, in Italy to get those books back. But that was exactly how they entered the auction house, wow. by climbing up the side of the wall. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. So what is the uh, what is the easy stuff to get back? Because I, I, I okay, so here's how I'm, again, this is just my imagination. I'm so far out of my lane with this, Chris. Like, this is amazing to me. Um, I imagine that watches would come online for sale, and they would probably, you know, be pretty available in the public forum of shopping and kind of like books for book collectors. But art, when there's only really one of them in the world, I mean, there could be 20 Rolexes that were made exactly like that Rolex. But when it comes to art, there's really only one of them. So it's not like I would assume it's posted, you know, on eBay for sale. Well, that's right. Well, but when we get a theft report, these stolen uh, artworks go on to various databases, Interpol, 
the FBI database, our own database, as well as uh, there are some Canadian law enforcement databases. And we essentially make the artwork unsellable. So the auction houses will check some of these databases process, and, and it'll turn up that the painting that they're trying to sell is stolen. And by limiting the ability of thieves to cash out on these thefts, we make some progress, and then the artwork will be sold underground at a fraction of thieves or traded for guns and weapons, but eventually it will find its way to the marketplace, and that's when we, that's when we seize the, the artwork, or try, anyway. Is there a, is there a timeline uh, of the longest or oldest item that you've stumbled across that you say, like, through the course of time, maybe traded and swapped for goods, but it finally made its way back to the marketplace? Uh, how many years old are some of these cases that pop up from time to time? Well, the included artwork that I work on, uh, these are paintings that have been missing for 75 to 80 years. Wow. Um, but regular thefts from museums uh, and collections sometimes can take 25 to 30 years. It's not unusual for that to happen because artwork could be held in, in a collection unknowingly uh, for, for a generation. And then when the children, uh, when the work is passed on to the children, the children may try to sell it and, and you know, not know that the work was stolen. And so that's not unusual. And the quickest recovery we've done is two weeks from the date of the theft from a Czech you know, museum in the Czech Republic. It took two weeks to get the piece back on the wall. And wow. that was that was relatively quick. Uh, money laundering inside art. Uh, again, not my expertise, but in doing some reading, it's a great way in art because there's no real standards around it. I mean, who decides what the art is worth for people to bury money inside artwork and then you avoid taxes in a lot of ways and all these other things. So um, the art has value in the business of money as much as it does in the beauty of the art. Does that part really get in the way of the affluent folks hiding and moving money and being able to find it? Or I guess on the other end of that would be desperately wanting it back because how much they actually have invested in some of this art? Well, that's definitely a factor. Uh, money laundering has been uh, accomplished in the art world for decades. Uh, what's interesting, though, now there's a, a large movement in the law in, in the UK and in the United States and in the EU to um, crack down on money laundering in the art world. And that's having a, a very strong effect. Uh, there are background checks that have to be done on the artwork and on the people that you're dealing with and the source of the funding. Uh, but ultimately, those pro uh, programs will only succeed if there's enforcement. Uh, you know, people say, oh, the art world is not regulated. Well, that's not really true. There are plenty of laws on the books. But if those laws are not enforced, uh, then you're not going to see a diminution in, in, in the crimes being committed. What's the uh, what's the most interesting to find? I mean, we were just talking about the Winston Churchill print. Um, they figure it's six figures, so it's not in the the mega millions of of the prints, but still a, a, a pretty bold action in Canada. 
you know, what, what's the most fun to chase down? Is it is it the cars? Is it the jewelry? Is it the the, the art? Well, I'm working on, and I have been since 2007, the James Bond DB5 that was in the film Goldfinger with all the gadgets and whatnot. That car was stolen in 1997 from Boca Raton, Florida, and I've been chasing it around the world uh, for quite a long time. And sure, that would be a fun uh, object to recover because it is probably the most famous classic car in the world. But many of the recoveries that I work on are fun because I really enjoy reuniting uh, people with the objects that were stolen from them. Some of them have a real uh, sentimental value to them. It's, it's not about the monetary value, whether it's Nazi looting works that were taken from their family. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's nice to be able to um, reconnect people with their history and what and things that are important to them. Must be a distinction, though, between sort of the hooliganism of thievery versus the top level, you know, professionals that literally do it as a living all day, every day. Well, sure. I mean, some of these colleges that run in and steal, you know, sculptures, you know, for fun, and they those those objects usually are recovered pretty quickly, and and the students get a slap on the wrist. But it, and that's very different from you know, the high-end heists where, you know, thieves will break into a museum or a, a gallery and then try to sell the objects. Um, but, you know, I, I try to dispel the myth that there's a romance to art theft because there really isn't. It's a horrific crime uh, with many, many victims. And, you know, the, the thieves are not, you know, ex- sexy, exciting, you know, debonair people they're common thugs that would steal from their own mother it, it's just not at all that like hollywood le- would lead us to believe so chris your background is in law um how do you go from you know just curious about how do you find this i mean you're the ceo and founder of art recovery international you're chasing james bond's car around the world how did you get from your your lawyer life into this world and and find this i mean this is absolutely fascinating to me well, before I went to law school, I was in art school, and I wanted to be an artist. And my practical family uh, said, well, you know, you need to make a living, go do something else. And my art teacher agreed. <laughs> I guess I was not all that <laughs> talented. So, uh, you know, but to keep my love of the arts alive, I, I, I balanced my uh, legal career with, with a career in, in art law. And uh, we find these objects as they are placed into the marketplace for sale. We get tips from people all over the world. Uh, We scan auction catalogs, uh, eBay, Instagram. You know, a lot of people that we work with around the world will notify us when something that we're looking for is is reported uh, being offered for sale. And, And then we do our thing, which could be any one of a thousand different strategies well one of those strategies this could be a little bit too much dipping into the 11 herbs and spices of your work but we did a a piece last night on ai art where computers making art you would tell the computer you know what you wanted i think ryan did darth vader in a honda civic and then the computer would generate these images of what it thinks a civic looks like and what it thinks darth vader looks like puts them all together and do that is there there must be 
much like facial recognition technology today that could scrape and scour the internet. Because what I think of is they talked about it for the Winston Churchill print here in Canada last week that, you know, who, who attended a party in that room and would have photos from social media, perhaps in the proximity of that print. And then they could tell the difference in the frame based on the photos that were online. Uh, is that kind of leverage working in your favor now where you can have AI or computers that are scanning and scraping not just an Instagram account that has the Rolex on it, but that scans all the pictures trying to find the painting, the, the photo, the necklace, the watch, and get a hit, say, oh, hey, look, there's Steve. He's wearing the watch. Uh, does that start to work in your favor? Well, there's no doubt about it that technology is improving greatly, and our ability to do our work is improved by that technology. However, keep in mind that technology is a double-edged sword. Uh, criminals also have access to technology, and, and they are very clever. And, and in order for us and the law-abiding world to stay on top of this, we have to stay one step ahead of the criminals. And that's very difficult to do because um, we have to abide by the law. So even though AI might be able to help us find a 300,000 euro watch being offered for sale somewhere in Poland, we still have to get local authorities to assist us with the person that's offering it for sale and, and, and go in and, and either arrest them or seize the watch. You know, we still need to rely on humans. And uh, that is not e an easy thing to do. You told us about the car. Is there one piece of art with your art history that is unsolved in your world that, you know, is that love affair victory? Is there one piece of art that you would just love to get back? Well, I never give up on anything. So I, am, I don't have any closed cases until they're actually recovered. But there are some longstanding open cases that I'd like to see resolved. There's a stolen uh, Joshua Reynolds painting hanging on uh, a wall in the Tokyo Fuji Art Museum, and the Japanese are not cooperating. There's a missing uh, Dega that was sold by a dealer in Hamburg, Germany, to an unnamed principal in Switzerland, and that painting was looted by Hermann Goering himself, and the German government is dragging their feet in assisting us, even though they like to say that they're in favor of restitution, but not when it applies to urban citizens and, and the private sector. So, um, you know, there are a lot of objects out there that are on my list of most wanted. Um, you know, there's a, uh, a Bellini that was stolen from a church of, the, of Madonna d'Orto in Venice, Italy, uh, which has yet to resurface since 2003. So, uh, yeah, there's a. I can go. I have a very long laundry list of things I'd like to get back. What's on your wall? You must have something cool on your wall. <laughs> That's confidential. <laughs> oh, wait a second. Is it stolen? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we no, we don't have anything stolen uh, on our walls. We do have a few things uh, that we try to. Stolen art does come through the office quite frequently, but we don't like to publish our address for that purpose, and we try to get it out of here probably as smart. quickly as possible. Yeah, probably a good idea. I, Chris, this is fascinating to me, and I really appreciate you being so generous with your time uh, to share what this world looks like. I had no idea, like no idea, 
that this is what it was like. I guess I kind of figured it was like, oh, well, you lost it. Call the insurance company, and, and that was it. So, You know, I recover a lot of things from Canada, and Canada is quite a hotbed these days. Really? Um, people think that, I mean, one of the first things I recovered from Canada was what people typically think of Canadian art. It was a pair of um, uh, carved moose antlers. Okay, but, you know, I'm also recovering uh, clays and kokoshkas and uh, Carolapel paintings, uh, you know, very sophisticated and valuable artwork in very important Canadian collections. Uh, so, uh, you know, art gets stolen from Canada and art uh, stolen art appears in Canada. That's cool. Well, not cool. It's not cool to buy stolen art. You get what I'm saying. This whole world is Yeah, well, you see, you just you just fell for it. You see, that's what people think. They're like, oh, this art recovery of stolen art world is cool. You know, yeah. it's not cool until you're, you know, it, when you're a victim, it's a horrific, horrific personal affront and a crime. And that's how we well, need to look at it. We can't let Hollywood skew our thoughts on, right. on the world of stolen art. Well, and you know what? I mean, that usually, when you say it that way, I would add this. It probably means somebody was in your house that shouldn't have been. You know, the personal violation of, of that break and enter or whatever it looked like is, you know, that that's incredibly terrible for people. And so I'm glad you make that Absolutely. distinction. That, right? I mean, that, that museum, that, that Joshua Reynolds in the museum in Tokyo, the, the, the thieves broke into the home while the family was sleeping. You know, yeah. and I, it, you know, in today's world, crime is getting more and more violent. We're seeing old we're seeing uh, senior citizens being pistol whipped, you know, to to to, to talk about where the valuables are. You know, this is wow. it's just this is not this is not fun. <laughs> you know, this is yeah. really horrific crimes. Well, I still think that your your job and your your chosen career here is a fascinating a fascinating choice. Uh, the peace of mind you must give to somebody who lost a five million dollar piece of art and then you find it later must be absolutely rewarding as you described it. So that's really cool. Thank you so much for sharing the time and being with us here on the sure. show, Chris. No, no, it's been absolutely my pleasure. I hope we find that Churchill uh, photograph uh, sooner than later. It's a, a fascinating story in itself. Yeah, well, I, I think I would like to just check in in a little bit and see what else is going on in the world of stolen art and stolen cars and jewelry. I think that we all probably benefit from learning on what's going on in the background. I mean, that's that's I think that's good for us to learn. Thanks, Chris. Feel free to check in anytime. Nice to be with you. Christopher A. Marinello, CEO and founder of Art Recovery International. I had no idea. This is the Shift Podcast. It's hard to believe in some ways that it's been six months. In other ways, it feels like it's been a lifetime. And perhaps that is the way we need to look at it. A lifetime of turmoil as Ukraine tries to seek its independence. Joining us now from Odessa, Ukraine, uh, Hannah Shalist. Hi, Hannah. Good morning. Good morning to you. And it's been a little bit, so let's uh, get caught up because it's nice to hear your voice again. Summer and work and all of those things. How are you? Um, not bad uh, in big expectations because you understand we are uh, closely following what is happening around your son with the worry for our soldiers, but at the same time with the hope that they will be able to liberate more territories and more people on the south. 
Now there is a big counteroffensive going on in Carson um, right now. Um, how that's so close to you uh, in Odessa? I'm best because you said Mikolaev is about uh, 150 kilometers, so it must be not much further than that. Maybe an extra half hour. Um, yes, in general, that is approximately 250 kilometers between Kherson and uh, Odessa um, along the coastline. But, you know, that's not about uh, kilometers. We have a lot of uh, friends and colleagues in that city. Some of them evacuated, but some of them are still in the city. So definitely uh, you're getting the news. You're trying to talk with them because not always they have internet or electricity, uh, but to get at least some information. And it is the feeling from both sides that we are waiting to be reunited do you uh you guys in odessa i mean you yourself have seen rockets hit the water and and so on and i I was going to ask this question about crimea but i guess it's probably even closer do you see any of the repercussions of what's going on in herson with 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 that counteroffensive now can you see things flying do you hear things i mean i realize it's a it's still a long way away but it is kind of across the water as it skirts the shoreline back to Odessa. Is there anything that that you experience in Odessa uh, aside from the connection of the people? No. Uh, Kherson is still too far for us to hear or to see anything. Uh, But at the same time, we see the responses from the Russian forces. And this night they tried for several times to attack Odessa region. And uh, uh, we had something like three air raids uh, uh, as a result, two missiles. uh, Luckily, one being caught with the air defense and another fall in the middle of the field uh, so this night was more or less okay for us but uh, definitely we, uh, it is increased amount of the air raids in response from the Russian territory uh, but in terms of physical uh, definitely not it's mostly uh, um, either news because we are following very closely or the videos that we have from there and the conversations that we have with our friends do your friends um, send videos send messages like that because i i guess we don't understand what it's like for you i mean as a professional you know with um the politics and um all the work that you do advocating for ukraine in general uh you know every day i think that we always look at it from this news perspective that's oh hi benjamin um we all the news perspective that you hear from you hear the news right here in the west we would hear the news but when you have friends that are in here son when you do, do you get those text messages from your friends that that um that show you things that are going on there uh, there are two things. First is the direct communication with some of the friends who are there, but you understand that most of them are my colleagues, so, so they are activists as well, and for them it is very dangerous uh, to send uh, some of the information. So from time to time uh, um, we're asking how they are, they're uh, telling us a few stories about what is happening around, but for most of the active citizens who are in the town, that is even the rule when you go outside of your house, clean your telephone. No photos, no messages, try to have it uh, definitely not ideally clean because that is also suspicious. Uh, but people are trying uh, not to have anything that can be suspicious for the Russian forces because the last week the patrols and the check-ins really intensified as Russians are searching for the partisans. And the right. last week, we definitely, like, it is for the last two months that the partisans were very active. But the last week, they activated, they intensified their activities even more. 
uh, and they also publish a lot of, of information of what they did. Uh, and uh, uh, regular citizens, you know, we have uh, bots in the social networks, I mean, Telegram bots, where you can report with some videos. As soon as the shelling starts, uh, people are recording videos and just sending them to the few local channels, which all of us are following, because it's better to see it once by your eyes than to read in any type of the messages. Mm -hmm. And I suppose if you happened upon Russians and then they wanted to look at your phone, it looks a lot less like you're a spy, if you will, versus a regular civilian if you have uh, minimal information reporting and sharing going on in your phone. I suppose that's one of those self-preservation things that everyone has to be careful of. Yes, exactly, because uh, Russians are panicking now in the city. They never felt um, stable there, uh, that they're like trusted or they're welcomed. Uh, so they always were on the high alert. But uh, since the uh, counter-offense started, even that I will not call it yet the big full-fledged counter-offense, military are very careful with this uh, terminology, but still the uh, certain counter-offense started and uh, Russians started to search who is providing information, who is reporting, because uh, they definitely think that, uh, uh, like, they are not uh, um, assured in themselves on the ground. Uh, that's why in many villages uh, where the Russian uh, stockpile ammunitions, for example, been, uh, it's now a huge search of the uh, um, supporters of partisans, of activists, and they're just coming to the houses, checking everything, arresting some of the people. That's why now for a lot of locals, they need to be even twice more careful. Uh, so much going on. Uh, the, uh, there's a great headline on the BBC, and I, I liked what it says. Is this Ukraine's breakthrough moment? You got this counteroffensive stuff going on. You have not only that, but there's the power plant conversation. As a Ukrainian, does it feel empowered, right, to be pushing back? I mean, Ukraine's done an amazing job uh, stemming the tide, if you will, for six months. But now this massive pushback must be liberating and um, uh, empowering for, for the citizens of your country? You know, that is definitely, everybody would like to have a positive and good news. Uh, that's why people are cheering uh, each news uh, that we are receiving, uh, successful news that we are receiving from the South. At the same time, we understand two things. First, that any counter-offense means three times more casualties than defense of the territories. And for us, the lives uh, and health of our soldiers are extremely important. We are not sending them as the cannon um, made of cannon fodder what uh, Russians are doing with uh, a lot of people on the East. Uh, that's why we are very careful in our emotions as for now. But at the, uh, the second point, you need to understand that the uh, uh, front line is still around 2,000 kilometers. We are uh, talking about Kharkiv city that is under daily attack, very heavy attack. We are talking about the eastern regions uh, like Donetsk, uh, where fighting around a lot of, of the towns. Uh, my family uh, uh, just evacuated from one of the towns there because it became extremely dangerous to be and then you definitely have uh, the Parisian nuclear power plant and the town of Energodar. The delegation of the International Atomic um, Agency is trying to be there. Uh, but since yesterday, the Russian forces are heavily shelling uh, the town and the road, so not allowing the uh, uh, inspectors to move towards the station and to check what is the situation there. That's probably the first time in history when the uh, um, nuclear plant being made the uh, military 
base by the aggressor. How do we um, how do we interpret everything that's going on with the power plants, uh, Hannah? Uh, there's been so much news reporting, and I think it's almost confusing that they um, that Russians are there, but they're using it to store equipment. But then there's been shelling, and then this side blames the other side for shelling, and that side blames this side for shelling. I think that everybody in their right mind knows that dropping shells on a nuclear power plant is probably not a good idea. Um, how do we cut through all that? I mean, accuracy and reporting is a big part of your life. What do we need to understand around these these power plants and what's going on there? Uh, first of all, and that is like the baseline, that the military forces should not be at the territory of the power yeah. plant. And Good they are point. not just at the territory, which is the big, and you can say that you are very far from any type of the nuclear facilities, but Russians managed to bring equipment and personnel inside of the engine holes. And we have videos of this, so it is not the blaming or claiming um, uh, the employees of the uh, um, uh, plant managed to secretly record and to deliver these uh, videos uh, to media. So we see around 50 uh, heavy military machines inside of the engine hall of the nuclear plant. That is a violation of all possible security and safety measures, conventions, wherever you can imagine. The second is definitely that they are keeping uh, the personnel of the station as kidnapped they are not allowing them to leave they are under this serious stress so you can imagine that it can be just the individual mistake that leads to any type of the catastrophe and that's also violation of the safety regulations about the operation of the nuclear plant then russians are trying to disconnect the nuclear plant from the ukrainian electrical grid and to connect it to the russian electrical grid uh, let's be honest, that's just stealing. That is open stealing that they are proud of what they are doing. But in addition to this, the most difficult question is the shelling. Russians occupied the nuclear plant back in March. And originally, we had a lot of, of the security cameras at the territory. And we had the videos of their shelling. So you easily can identify from where they are shelling, what is the direction, and so on. Uh, at, but at that time, they were shelling around. They've been just using as the coverage the nuclear plant, hoping that Ukrainian armed forces will not uh, respond. Uh, later, they started to shell Ukrainian towns like Nikopol, which is just across the river from the territory of the nuclear plant. Again, using uh, the territory uh, and violating all the safeties. And later, because the fighting is happening around, we started to see more and more incidents when uh, um, some parts of the missiles or some of the rockets started to fall at the territory. And you need to understand that the nuclear plant, what is dangerous there, it's not only the engines and the nuclear reactor itself, you also have the storage facilities of the wasted nuclear um, uh, parts uh, or the water that is also uh, with a high level of radiation. What's happened, for example, in Fukushima in Japan, that was not with the reactor, it was with the nuclear water. And mm -hmm. all of us remember the uh, tragedy and dramatic results of this. So uh, the whole territory definitely should be uh, demilitarized. The Ukrainian side are talking about this at all United Nations meetings, that the shelling should stop. And uh, uh, later, Russians can claim, like today, for example, we recorded uh, the uh, heli Russian helicopters that are bombing this town of Energodar. And uh, uh, immediately when Russians realize that it is the direct evidence of their like violations and the war crimes, 
uh, in their media appeared the information. Um, it was Ukrainian landing operations, uh, so we needed to uh, use helicopters to find uh, uh, combatants. Try to imagine wow. you have the combat helicopter shelling the residential area, and your explanation is that you have few Ukrainian soldiers that managed to um, reach the town. Absolute nonsense, but that is the reality. Yeah, and the, the lies are everywhere, and it's lies that actually gets me really concerned with this question. Uh, Hannah Shalist is in Odessa. The uh, the babies, Hannah. So let's get to the simple fact of life here, is that there's a bunch of young kids that have been through COVID, school uh, on and off and all of those things for young kids. Now, in certain areas of Ukraine, how do you go to school in the middle of a war, especially in occupied territory? And so here's because as we get ready for back to school here in Canada, I was thinking about kids and my kids, you know, missing time and working school from home during COVID. Well, now if you look at Ukraine and you translate that to Ukraine, you have a bunch of kids and I'm, I'm assuming this. So please correct me if I've misunderstood. You have a bunch of kids that have probably missed a bunch of school time anyway. Then you have another big chunk of kids that probably can't go to school either because everybody's gone, teachers are gone or the schools are gone. And then you have another group of kids that might be in occupied territory and parents, Ukrainian parents might not want to send them to school because they might be getting a Russian teacher and they could be getting taught propaganda, erasing history and all of those things. What do you hear about the babies? Because there's this chunk of generation that's just not going to get educated. Yes, yeah, so there are three groups. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, the local authorities made a decision that uh, um, only those schools that have a shelter uh, um, have a reason to start their offline education. And that is up to the principal of the school and uh, uh, parents how they would like to teach their kids. So, for example, in Odessa, approximately 30% of schools have these shelters and they are deciding if they are okay to send their kids and depending, like, uh, will it be high school or um, a younger school, primary school, so that is up to them to decide. But in general, you understand that that is not more than 30% of schools that will be able to go offline for the normal education. Normal, but definitely in terms there is no air raid. The second part uh, just originally decided that they would like to continue online education. You also need to remember that uh, approximately 10 million Ukrainians, predominantly female and kids, left Ukraine. So these kids are going now to the schools abroad. Some of them decided to stay with the online education here. And that's also a huge problem because um, most of uh, women definitely prefer uh, their kids to be in offline school even when they're abroad, especially in those countries where conditions created, like, for example, in Poland. And now that is the huge question, um, how these kids will be in which system of education when they decide to return. So this uh, August, it was the huge dilemma for the parents to decide, can they return back or not, should they or not, what school to choose. But at the same time, the biggest problem is definitely what you said about the um, occupied territories. Well, because uh, most of the teachers rejected to cooperate with the Russians, most of them tried to uh, flood the countries uh, or, or at least the occupied territories. Some of them uh, being arrested. So Russians brought a lot of Russian teachers at the territory of the Kherson region. Still, because, and uh, uh, because of these, definitely parents didn't want to send their kids. Even more, Russians immediately introduced the Russian syllabus uh, burning Ukrainian books of history, of literature, so just like erasing and canceling anything connected with Ukraine. 
uh, parents didn't want to send their kids. They said that still they can do online with some um, uh, schools in other towns of Ukraine. Russians started um, uh, the campaign trying to bribe parents. So uh, it is either in some towns we heard about huge threatening uh, that the kids can be taken from the families in case they are not sent to school. And mm. in some towns, uh, like in Kherson, uh, they started to propose quite a significant uh, amount of money, uh, but for like buying books, uniforms, supporting families. So it announced like this uh, with the idea that parents will agree to send their kids because of this money. Um, dubious, but at least that is the tactic about which we hear now. Hmm. Unbelievable. Hannah Shalis is in Odessa, Ukraine. And one more question, and I, I don't really know how to ask this question, to be honest, uh, Hannah, but I just want to be honest with it. Um, Mikhail Gorbachev passes away. My understanding, as he was so, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but he was so integral in disassembling the old USSR how does Ukraine see a guy like Mikhail Gorbachev and his passing and his impact on your region now for when um, a lot of this was the, the, the timing of when Ukraine became sovereign was back when he was breaking things down and, and such the opposite, at least as intended to be happening with Putin today. How does Ukraine look at his passing? You know, he's very controversial figure uh, for us. Uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the certain, uh, um, uh, let's say, freedom of speech and some of these issues that he brought uh, are definitely perceived as good, uh, even that the dissolution of the Soviet Union was not his intention, let's be honest. Uh, it was more of his mistake, so we can't praise him uh, exactly for this. It just happened at his time. But at the same time, for us, Gorbachev is the symbol of other things. Gorbachev for us is the symbol of Chernobyl. Uh, if you remember the, uh, if not the history, but at least the uh, movie about Chernobyl, you know that Chernobyl happened on the 26th of April. For the 1st of May, he ordered uh, 100,000 uh, citizens of Kiev to go to the 1st May demonstration. And it was extremely dangerous for their health because there were kids there and we still have the consequences of this. So all this hiding of the Chernobyl tragedy of what's been happening there and mismanagement of the situation, that's what Ukrainians remember all these years. Uh, also, in 2014, uh, Gorbachev supported annexation of Crimea. So again, uh, definitely not a positive characteristic about his perception of Ukraine and everything happening here. So uh, the same when I talk with the, uh, uh, my friends in Lithuania, they remember Gorbachev as the person who ordered killing of the civilian demonstrations in Vilnius um, uh, when the Soviet Union being already in the turn, uh, um, turmoil. Uh, the same in Tbilisi. They also remember how he ordered the uh, um, killing of the civilian demonstrators in the city. That's why it seems to me that this flur of Perestroika and everything, all his positive image that he has uh, abroad, it's more of the picture, that's more of the symbol that everybody wanted to, to think about. And probably just the opposite to Mr. Putin now, with all his dictatorship and the... Uh, uh, definitely like tragic um, uh, policy, but at the same time, we should be sober about uh, Mr. Gorbachev. Um, he was not an angel, and for many nations of the Soviet Union, there are dark pages of their history. Yeah, we hear so much only about the Berlin Wall and not about the other things 
that are that are there. And thank you for answering that question. I think it's important that everybody hears that perspective of uh, of of the man as he passes away uh, this week. Well, please uh, give uh, Hannah Shalis is in Odessa. Give Benjamin a scratch. He was a good boy for uh, staying quiet after all that. Um, so glad to hear that he's also doing okay. Please stay safe and um, and I wish you the best. We will talk very soon. Please, Hannah. Thank you for the invitation. Always glad. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.